online poker was deemed illegal in the United States 10 years ago. Since then, poker has decreased in popularity and then found new invigoration thanks to live streaming and a large volume of bored gamers looking for something to do during the pandemic. Poker is a strategy game that can be played even without the financial element, and Clubs Poker is a free-to-play, web-based poker client that grew significantly over the last year. Taylor Crane is the founder of Clubs Poker, and he joins the show to talk about the past, present, and future of online poker, as well as the engineering around his platform, Clubs Poker. If you are interested in sponsoring Software Engineering Daily, we reach over 25,000 engineers per episode and 250,000 engineers per month. If you are promoting a product or looking to hire engineers, Software Engineering Daily can be a great place to get your message out to a large populace of experienced engineers. To find more information about sponsoring Software Engineering Daily, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sponsor. We'd love to hear from you. Taylor, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. You work on Clubs Poker, and it's worth first talking about why it makes sense to start a poker site in the United States, given that online poker is basically illegal for the large percentage of users. So some history. Why did online poker get shut down in the United States when it had been so popular for some period of time? Uh, So that's a great question. So online poker was shut down in the US 10 years, actually 10 years ago exactly. It was infamously called Black Friday. I remember it very, very clearly. I was a senior in college playing poker religiously and log on one day to Full Tilt Poker and the site doesn't load. And I go uh, on the homepage instead of seeing fulltiltpoker.com, we see, I think it was like the badges for the Department of Justice and the FBI. And you just immediately knew something bad had happened. So yeah, it turns out that out of nowhere, the three top online poker sites in the U.S., were shut down. It was uh, PokerStars. I think it was PokerStars, Full Tilt Poker, and Absolute Poker. And the FBI basically threw the book at them. Uh, they, they utilized a law that was passed in 2006 called the UIEGA. It stands for the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act. And they charged these sites with a litany of just uh, you know, bank fraud and money laundering charges. Interestingly enough, they did not charge them with operating an, uh, an online poker site illegally, let's say, because operating an online poker site or playing poker online itself is not actually illegal. What they charged them with was the processing of gambling transactions. Not only did they charge these three online poker sites, but they actually also went after the banks that were processing these transactions too. So that is a little history. And so given that history, it remains illegal to play poker online in most contexts. I know there are some limited ways in which you can play online. Like I think in Las Vegas, maybe some other states, you can also play poker online. But for the vast majority, I think that, you know, requires certain licensing. But I know that, you know, right now you're you're not focused on that direct route of just allowing people to play poker and collecting a rake. So if you can't gamble in normal ways, what are the routes to monetization that you're considering for the business? Great question. There were a couple of things in there. Uh, just to reiterate your point, in the US, to play poker online is very, very difficult. Uh, for, uh, to play poker online, rather, for real money is very, very difficult. There are, I think, five states in the US where 
Uh, it is legal. Jersey, Nevada, Pennsylvania, a few others. Effectively, for the most of the U.S., you, you know, you cannot. And then, so segue to clubs poker. Clubs poker, you're focused on creating the simplest and best experience for groups of friends to play poker together online. And we are an entirely play money site. So there is no way for you to uh, deposit money or withdraw money or gamble in any way using our software. And so, to, you know, to your point, we cannot therefore build a business model off of taking a rake from the poker game as uh, typical online poker sites do. This sounds like a constraint in some ways, but it, it's actually an opportunity because it forces us to invent uh, a new business model for poker and, and see how far we can get. I think the poker industry today has proven that you can, of course, build a profitable business off of rake taking. For the mathematicians out there in the world, I, I think of this as uh, perhaps a local maximum. I see a, a much bigger or more global maximum by pursuing and optimizing for the social experience around the poker table and building a business model based on that. For us, rather, it looks like a freemium experience where you are upgrading for advanced features, uh, virtual goods, charging for you know big, big poker events, etc. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot about this question. And, and by the way, this is not to say that like in the future, I think there's definitely an opportunity for clubs to offer real money settlement, particularly utilizing crypto, though I don't think we're there yet. But yeah, I mean, like, I think like the broad question that I ask myself is if the game of poker was invented today, like we had no concept of poker in casinos. It was just literally invented today. And we saw, you know, for the first time in our lives, we saw 52 very strange cards in a deck. What would the business model look like for that game? And I think it would look more like Fortnite than it does like a casino. And so that's what I'm trying to build a business on. How is the public desire for poker these days, um, it seems like the uh, the game fell off in popularity for some period of time, but it seems like the popularity of the game has come back to some extent. How does it compare to the level of popularity that it was at in, what was it, say, 2004, 2005, when things were really popular? Yeah. There are a lot of ways to measure or to try and answer this question. One of my favorites actually is to look at, simply look at the number of entries in the World Series of Poker each year. The World Series of Poker is kind of like used as a barometer in the industry for measuring the health of the game. And you were referencing 2004, which was during the initial poker boom, right? We had the moneymaker boom in 2003 that extended to, to 04, 05. I think it, it peaked in like yeah, it probably did peak in 2011, which is when Black Friday happened and online poker in the U.S. was shut down. There was a valley, right? So popularity begins to dip. And then over the last five or so years, it's become it's come raging back. And so, again, on the on the metric specifically of like World Series of Poker participation each year, in 2019, it was uh, right at the same level as it was in 2011. And then, of course, COVID hits, right? So it's a bit hard to measure the last two years. But then you look at what happened in COVID and you look at the increased traffic for all the online poker sites around the U.S. And then you also look at you know what's happening in the U.S. for players that are finding ways to play in the U.S., particularly online, particularly in private clubs, and where there's a will, there's a way, right? So it is happening, and it's happening more than ever. Uh, and then for clubs specifically, I can you know our own traffic numbers point to the increased popularity over the last eighteen months or so as well. I think there's a very f bright future for poker. Yeah, we just got to architect it in the right way. So I'd like to talk some about actually product development and, and engineering, which is what most of the show is about. And we'll we can go back and forth between that and the actual ethos and the culture and the poker landscape. But what I found interesting about Clubs Poker was there had not been, as far as I know, 
a popular web-based client for playing poker. All of the clients that I had seen in the past were, you know, binaries that you had to download. Why hadn't there been a web-based client for online poker for the vast majority of the game's existence? A great question. And to add more context uh, for those that might be less familiar uh, with playing poker online, you have to download desktop software, right? You're down at PokerStars or GG Poker, et cetera. You're downloading desktop software. Uh, I think the, the reason for this is actually quite simple. And it's that when online poker was first created as a concept in the early 2000s, I think 2002, it was created, you know, naturally speaking, because of uh, the times, it was created as a desktop app that you download. And then there has just been zero technical innovation in the space since then. It's like, you know, once you're a business and you're a cash cow, you can kind of just sit back and relax until, of course, there's a shakeup. Uh, I think there has not been a meaningful innovation or technical shakeup uh, in the online poker space since it first emerged in the early 2000s. I think that's the simplest explanation. And I think it's also the truest. Is there any advantage to having a web-based client versus a desktop client? There's certainly plenty of advantages in 2002. Today, I would struggle to think of, I mean, I can think of plenty of disadvantages. I mean, my, my background is in, is in the web. And so I'm probably not the best person to speak to this, but there, there might be like certain lower level processes or, or just like network functionality you might get access to as a desktop application. But by and large, uh, I th- it's completely unnecessary. I mean, yeah, even like the desktop apps today, like, you know, Slack is a desktop app, right? But it works over the web. Uh, I think it just uses Electron. So my short answer to that, I think, is no. I think it's just a function of a legacy software not being pushed to innovate. I think a lot of people, one of their earliest programming experiences is to make some kind of game and like a toy, maybe a toy poker game would be like a common game that people might make. But of course, taking a, a poker game and, and actually making it production ready and high quality is significantly more difficult. What are the hardest engineering problems inherent in building a poker client? Building a poker client has been the most humbling technical challenge of my career. I also want to uh, asterisk that my background, by the way, is in product management, right? So I've, uh, I can code poorly, but not an engineer and I did not architect clubs poker. I work with a, a very talented team, but I, I can still speak to it. So yeah, the most humbling technical challenge of my life, uh, it is relatively straightforward to build a working poker application where you can click buttons, right? And you can make bets and and checks and and resolve hands in like test environments, if you will. But when you shift to production and you actually start scaling, it's like the tip of the iceberg, right? The amount of challenges you're exposed to when you're dealing hundreds of thousands or millions of hands a month are just like, yeah, just completely different level. So some of the technical challenges that I think are most interesting that <laughs> and the hardest and, and, and therefore the most interesting that we've had to deal with, so it goes without saying, but like all sorts of concurrency and network-related challenges. It's funny, it's like when I first started working on clubs, building a poker app specifically, I didn't think of it as I'm building a game. For some reason, I don't know why, but I just didn't think of it as building a game in the same way that like Call of Duty is a game. But there are a lot of common challenges that one has to solve. And any game developer, uh, I think, knows how to deal with concurrency challenges and network, you know, network challenges like the back, you know, latency stuff, like the back of their hand, much less so in the web development world. Like if you're building a typical CRUD application, you just encounter those kinds of challenges much less frequently. So those are two high level examples to get a bit more specific, like 
we have to make sure that it's an event-driven architecture, by the way. So like every client is sending uh, actions to the server and the server is taking its own actions as well. And those actions are, are sitting in a queue. And we have to make sure that every single event is processed in the right order so as not to cause any kind of concurrency issues. And we have to make sure that every client receives every game state update in the right order as well. And because the clients rely on those game state updates in the right order to animate correctly between and transition correctly between uh, state updates. So those are two challenges we faced over the last year. And then just generally like trying to account for like all sorts of network and latency issues like dropped connections or, or shoddy internet connections. And you have to have fallbacks on fallbacks to make sure the game continues to run smoothly, right? If you're playing with 10 players and one player has a shoddy connection, you don't want the game to be held up because uh, of that player's internet. You have to have uh, fallbacks and, and you know, think through these edge cases. By the way, it's like we are still working on these challenges today at Clubs Poker. They are far from solved. And I'm not sure if they'll ever be fully solved. But as we scale, we'll continue to make more progress on them. And I'm sure we'll also encounter new challenges too. How are you managing your engineering team, especially with the, uh, I guess you have some experience as an engineer, but I think it's a, it's always interesting to talk to people who are not, you know, fully trained as computer scientists or engineers. And they're learning the ropes of engineering while managing an engineering team. What's been your process for learning those ropes as an engineering manager? Yeah, so a bit of context on the team. We're a very young company, right? It's a very small team. It's just two engineers and myself. It's uh, Sergio and Mike. They're both full-stack engineers, fully autonomous, highly uh, technical, very senior engineers that I have a lot of trust in. And so it makes my job quite a bit easier because they, uh, I have full trust that they you know, dive in and, and do what they need to do. My background, right, is in product management, right? So I have plenty of experience sort of tightly managing timelines and engineering teams in the context of like, you know, feature development work. Uh, and so I'm able to leverage plenty of those skills uh, here as well. It's been, I mean, to speak more broadly to your question about like, as a non-technical person working closely with engineers as a PM, and then now actually effectively managing these engineers, it's been a journey uh, throughout my whole career. I started out entirely non-technical. I couldn't even have told you what JavaScript was. And throughout time, I have uh, learned to code myself. I've built multiple applications myself that have been shipped to production, some of which are, you know, even generate, you know, small amounts of revenue. And through that experience, I'm able to sort of talk the talk. And, and actually, what's more important than talking the talk, and uh, I think is through these experiences myself of like building my own applications, shipping them to production, just earning the respect of my engineering team. And, and that has gone so far, right? Because now I'm, I'm seen as a peer and not someone who like, oh, you don't know, you know, you don't know what we're talking about. You can't, you can't possibly relate to software engineering challenges. I think that's probably the biggest benefit or is the approach that I've taken at least over the last few years. Can you talk about the architecture? Yeah, I mentioned it briefly. So just to sort of start a high level, it's an event-driven architecture, right? So every player at the table is taking actions in the server and submitting those actions to the server. The server is taking its own set of actions as well. Uh, those actions are events, and those events all are pushed to like a central queue uh, for processing. And uh, yeah, the events are processed in a very specific order and like they go through like a transition function as well, right? So uh, we're modifying the game state and transitioning from game state one to game state two, and then the updated game state is gets added to that processing queue and gets pushed out to all the, the clients that are subscribing uh, to those updates uh, through WebSockets. It's a React front end, it's a Rails back end. We're also using like a few different Amazon uh, services like the SQS queue, for example. And yeah, uh, that's kind of the high level. 
so like let's say I'm I'm sitting there, uh, I'm playing a hand of poker, I make a bet. Is that bet just going? Is it hitting and getting posted to a queue and then getting picked up off the queue for backend processing and processing on on the rest of the other client front ends? Like is is that how it works, or like can you just can you just give me like an end to end description for one event being processed? Yeah, so you're a player in the game. You make a bet, right? That bet gets that event gets sent to the server for processing. It sits its own, in its own queue, right? Then it gets processed and it goes through a transition function to to primarily validate that the bet action that you submitted is, is actually valid, right? So that you're not like somehow uh, submitting an invalid action. Uh, assuming it's valid, the game state is modified with that bet event, right? So it's updated, and that new game state then gets added to the queue uh, for processing and gets and gets sent back to all of the clients at the same time uh, through that you know sort of like that pub sub uh, connection model over WebSockets. So then all the clients receive that updated game state, and let's say it's a bet. And in actuality, like I'm oversimplifying here, there's actually like I say three different events that will have happened. You'll be it'll be a bet event. It'll be like Perhaps it's like a bet event and there's going to maybe an assign actor event. Maybe there's a consolidate ships event as well. And then as a client, you receive, let's say, three different game state updates. And then your client is responsible for animating between game state one, game state two, and game state three. Uh, and then presenting game state three to the new actor who's, who's now, in this case, is meant to you know call the bet or fold or, or raise. So... Have you encountered any um, engineering challenges as the site has scaled up in in popularity? I mean, you've grown a lot in recent memory. Has anything changed or has the architecture scaled pretty appropriately? The architecture has scaled quite well up until now. We there was one uh, we did have one performance snag maybe like a month or two months ago maybe. So we like a lot of our efforts right now or over time, but you know right now in particular are focused on better infrastructure and logging to understand everything that's happening in a game so that if something were uh, to go wrong or we need to debug, like we have the information, we need to do it. And so we instituted a, uh, a logging scheme that is logging every time a client receives a state update from the server, it sends an acknowledgement back to the server and says, yep, I got state update. It's partially meant to solve problems related to clients not receiving state updates at all, which turns out is possible in the land of WebSockets. And so we just like covered this part of the archi- uh, the application in, in logging. And as the number of users scaled, we quickly realized that it was just hogging up all the resources and causing the app to like move to a crawl. Thankfully, nothing actually broke, surprisingly, but just like the app, it was just like unplayable because you would click bet. And like it would take five five whole seconds just to process the bet event, and so we we decided to move all that logging infrastructure and those those API calls to a separate server, and that alleviated the problem. That is the only scaling related issue that I think we've encountered so far. There will absolutely be many more. Have you had any conversations with other people who have run large poker sites or, or large gaming sites, and have you have you gotten any insight from talking to those people? Absolutely. And by the way, I am always, I love talking to these kinds of people. It is so fascinating. I mean, I, I've talked to lead engineers at PokerStars or at Full Tilt in like, you know, the, the heydays and also like more hobby, you know, engineers that have built more hobby projects as well. Uh, it's so fascinating for two reasons. Number one, I always learn a lot. Also, number two, it's like, it's like, you know, kind of like commiserating, right? We're like, we get to like talk about like a lot of the crap 
associated with building a poker app specifically. And it's just fun and, and like cathartic to talk through some of these challenges. So I have done that. Uh, it is so much fun. I would love to do way more of it and we'll continue to do it in the future. Yeah, it's it's super fun. Because I mean, there's such a, a, a strong history. It's kind of like a unique set of skills in the software world. And there are a number of engineers at this point who are now like late stage career, like 40 plus. And when they were like, you know, 25 you know, or so, uh, they were writing like the core code for the PokerStars client or the Fulltilt client. It's, it's super cool. So I'd love to come back to talking about the business. So, you know, as we talked about before, it's you have to find some kind of business model that is, I guess, outside of the uh, traditional ways of of the rake based gambling income. But do you do you have a a vision for eventually getting to that? I guess maybe more desirable monetization structure of of taking in rake and for those who don't know, rake is basically if I play a pot and that pot is like let's say it's $10 and then the rake is whatever, 2%, then the website is going to get 20 cents out of that pot. But yeah, do, do you have a vision for maybe eventually getting there? Or I guess if the, I guess it would take some tailwinds for the legality of poker to change before you could actually get there, unless you, unless you decided to focus on European platforms or focus on Vegas or focus on other places where it could be legal. So great question. A lot of thoughts. I, I want to first say that like, I, I actually don't think it's necessarily a more desirable business model. It is the obvious business model that the industry has adopted and has, in my opinion, sort of optimized themselves into a corner with. Although it's, a, it's a, applying a constraint to ourselves to say we are not going to be rake tanking, I think it opens up an opportunity for us to explore alternative business models that I think are absolutely out there and have been proven by other companies from Singapore uh, to Fortnite. Having said that, though, I think it's still definitely possible that we explore this in the future. It's not a focus of ours right now. I want to focus on building the right social experience first. And I think actually offering real money settlement and, and even rake taking would hurt that cause. And like it doesn't almost doesn't matter like if we have a unique brand or cooler features. Fundamentally, the business equation will be the same as every other online poker site. But absolutely, in, you know, in the future, once we have a better foundation for that social experience, I think there's an opportunity as, again, as you said, as the tailwind sort of uh, manifest, hopefully, and as crypto matures, I think there become more and more opportunities for us to, it seems like probably likely in the future that we will offer real money settlement where, uh, whether it's crypto or, or however, where you can play with you know, a group of, of people privately and then settle up uh, programmatically, you know, with some kind of, whether it's an whether there has to be like an escrow service or whether it's done again on the blockchain, uh, I think is TBD. But I think that's that's likely. I think what's much less likely or more uncertain is whether we actually take a rake from the pot. I think there just are a lot of implications there that seem less forward thinking than trying to at least first explore other business models that uh, again like look more like like the Fortnite of the world. So in-game virtual goods, uh, avatars and skins. Uh, and other things that enhance the experience of the game. So yeah, that's kind of that's how I'm thinking about it right now. Subject to change, right? We're, we're clubs is about two years in. We've got many more years to go. Uh, things will absolutely evolve, but that's kind of the take right now. Does crypto open up any kind of legal loopholes to getting online poker experience legal or gray area legal? The online poker 
in general right now, it sits in this gray area. Like you can talk to, and I have done this, you can talk to uh, legal teams in the U.S., that will advocate that online poker actually is not illegal in the U.S. It is perfectly legal to operate an online uh, poker site. And you will talk to legal teams that say the exact opposite. And they will each cite arguments and court cases uh, in favor of their case. It's, so it's all a gray area right now. The, my best, again, not a lawyer at all, but like my best interpretation of what is in the black area is when, when you, at least according to the UIEGA, right, that we talked about earlier, is when you are uh, actually processing the gambling transactions yourself, right? You are facilitating the transfer of money. Uh, and so what crypto presents that is interesting is a potential settlement infrastructure that doesn't ever have to, that we never have to be an intermediary to, right? We can either provide software ourselves that uh, facilitates those settlements where we're not an intermediary or pie in the sky idea. I mean, it is certainly possible that we can you know, expose an API, for example, for clubs where folks can build browser extensions or other sorts of uh, plugins that let them settle up in their own way. One of the interesting things that I've learned with clubs is that uh, different groups of, of communities that play on clubs have very different desires in terms of how they are, quote unquote, settling up. Uh, what I mean by that is like, we have plenty of groups that actually do play entirely for play money for, uh, and their motivation is like they have a league with their friends and they're keeping track of stats and standings over time and they like award a winner at the end. We have groups that play with virtual currencies. Uh, we have groups that play like they're like, I can think of one group, for example, that's a, they are a Grand Theft Auto community, like a GTA 5 community. And they play poker on clubs while in the Grand Theft Auto game and they settle up using like the inherent like Grand Theft Auto, like fake currency that doesn't actually have any real money value. So this is all to say that like, there's a lot of like use cases right now for clubs that are not just like, I want to pay you US dollars. But it's definitely going to be a valuable feature if and when we get there. And I, I think that, again, there's a lot for crypto needs to, and Web3 needs to evolve a lot, but I think there's potential for us to offer it or ex- at least explore offering it in such a way that we are not an intermediary and potentially be able to innovate you know, through that and stay clear of the UI, the legacy UIEGA law. Yeah, it's kind of funny because the way in which poker was, I felt, limited back in the day was, or from a legal perspective, was that you would have these restrictions on the bank transactions. And that's why a lot of people ended up, I think, going around uh, circumventing it with uh, PayPal and then, you know, Crypto would conceivably help with that, but I think probably the uh, the strictures in place around real money gambling are a little bit stronger today, or more than a little bit stronger today. Yeah, I think it's a, that's certainly a fair point of view. How do you feel about the morality of poker? Like, you know, there's obviously issues around addiction and and I guess just the traditional religious viewpoints around gambling being unethical. Do you have any like personal concerns about that? It's a great question. It's almost like deserving of its of its own podcast on its own. I think about this plenty of course and uh have a you know a point of view on it that evolves over time. Yeah, I'm also like caveat like I'm not a you know a philosopher. I don't think I'm like I should not be like the source of truth that's weighing in on this, but uh, I can give my perspective. Okay, this is going to sound like pretty, a little out there perhaps, but it is just my honest answer. I think like life itself is a gamble. 
uh, in a lot of ways. Like we gamble every day with how we spend our time and uh, who we do business with and the decisions that we make. Poker is a very in-your-face form of gambling, right? It's like a very simple game that involves money. And when we think of uh, of gambling, we equate it to money. Uh, sorry, to money. I'm so thankful that I learned how to gamble effectively uh, through poker. I think it's fundamentally changed how I live my life. Uh, I think any poker player would uh, would say the same thing. And so, yeah, it's like it's. Like I, I was a poker player for four years, right? I, I, I've seen upfront the pros and cons of gambling. I, I think overall have a very positive view of the the benefits of learning the ins and outs of gambling. Uh, again, as it is as it's associated with with life and business, but also just like there is absolutely an enjoyment factor to it. Like let's not diminish that. And yeah, I mean, like, like many things in life, like there are trade offs to be uh, considered and accounted for. You know, poker and gambling in general uh, is no different. I think our our job with clubs poker and just like broadly in general is like we want to maximize the positives and minimize the negatives. And you can say that about tech, many technology, like any new technology in general is like a new technology, for example, has positive use cases and it has negative use cases. And as a society, our job is to hopefully at least if we're doing things right, maximize the positives, minimize the negatives. I think it's very similar with gambling. Absolutely, there are negative things, addiction being just one of them, or financial hardship perhaps. Those are related but not actually exactly the same, are just worth always keeping in mind and, and trying uh, to minimize and, and trying to uh, at the same time sort of express and and, and showcase uh, the positives. My uh, For a non-poker player, this might sound silly to say, uh, I understand, but my I fundamentally like live my life based on many principles I've learned from the game of poker. And I think that's incredibly valuable. So yeah, that's my thought. Jeff, I'm actually curious what, what your take is on this as a poker player yourself. It's changed over time. I think I, I, I probably developed some dopamine circuits from poker that were not healthy. I think the stable income model that most people live their life by is a better one to, to build your life around and i think there there are ways of investing that are more steady than what poker normalizes you to you know like a lot of poker players when they stop playing poker they go into something like trading which has the similar ups and downs and they maybe don't realize the the pleasures of building a steady income and so i i think you know playing playing it regularly at an early age was probably you know, it has its pros and cons, but for me it was probably overall, I have my regrets about that. I wish I would have taken more of a, if I could trade in all the time I spent playing poker on programming, you know, programming has such so, mo- so much more steady returns to it than the turbulence of poker. So I, I agree with you, like, you know, I, I think whatever activity you, you take part in early on in your life, whatever you obsess about, whether it's music or poker or or programming your life does become kind of a metaphor for that activity and i just think there's there's better metaphors to build your life around than a gambling game now all that said like what i love about poker is you know it it does teach you the expected value framework of life thinking probabilistically making weighted bets all those things are can be really critical I mean, it's got its pros and cons, but like, I think the addiction side of it is, can be pretty pernicious if it's not regulated. I mean, it, it, you know, personally regulated by people. 
let me just ask, like, if you were not building a poker site, do you have any idea what you would be working on or what you'd be building or what industry you'd be in? That's a great question. I honestly have not meaningfully thought about that in a while. I mean, like, so my, I would certainly be a founder. Uh, I think I, this is the the career path that I've, uh, the career path I've been on has been leading up to, to me being a founder, you know, since day one or even before that. And so then the question becomes like, what other, what other problems do I see that I think would be interesting and valuable uh, to solve? And there are certainly many. One that always comes to mind is a big one in, it's just like a, it's a nebulous one. It's a bit hard to explain and I, I don't have like fully formed thoughts on it, but I think a lot about uh, the future of, of real estate, the future of living specifically, like residential real estate and like what, what a little philosophical here, but like what the death of suburbia could look like and, and you know, what does New York City look like in 2100? I think is a really interesting question uh, that I think a lot about. And I think like, you know, where does real estate have to get to where like, and what sorts of like experiences or lifestyles that don't really exist today that we could craft in the future that I think are better. So yeah, it's like, I can keep going on the subject, but I think a lot about my college days and graduating from college, like in college, like I'm living in a dormitory, right. With all my closest friends and we have our doors open and like we're super socializing. And when I graduated college, I moved to New York city and was living in a building with a bunch of people that I have no idea who they are. They're different like walks of life entirely in terms of like age and like what their profession is and what their interests are. And it was kind of a stark experience. And I wonder if um, there are opportunities to create uh, better communities through real estate technology. So that was random, but that is definitely something I think about. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen to all the urban blight? Like walking around San Francisco, just seeing the all these giant office buildings that are totally unoccupied. I wonder what's what's going to happen to all those all those places where SF for sure, New York Midtown for sure as well. It's interesting walking around Midtown these days. It's a great question. I've actually I've like asked real estate friends of mine this exact question because I, I wonder like so like one very tactical answer is like right now at least at least I can speak to New York like the office space in in Midtown uh, Manhattan uh, is largely zoned for office space, like legally zoned for office space, right? You can't just like one day decide to convert it to a residential building. There are all kinds of laws around like bedrooms have to have window, like many laws that I, which I don't, I'm not even familiar with, but it's just not so simple. So uh, maybe there are rezoning, uh, rezonings that happen. I don't know, but maybe there are like ways of, again, like, I, I just, there's just no way that we're using physical space, especially in cities in an optimal way. And I... Although I don't have the answers, I'm excited to see like what big office buildings in Midtown become, if not office buildings anymore. I wish I had the answer. So what are you focused on right now in Club Spoker? What are you building? Yeah, so we are focused on the next milestone for us future development-wise is uh, multi-table tournaments. So right now in Club Spoker, you can come, you can play, and we offer different uh, game formats, notably ring games or cash games and single table tournaments both modes are very popular and but fundamentally like you're playing against a maximum of 10 players uh, but what if you want to play with 20 players and 30 players and 100 players many clubs do this on clubs right on clubs poker right now but they they do so manually right they're re, sort of like recreating a multi-table tournament experience we think there's a massive opportunity to create a dedicated and what they what we call mtt or multi-table tournament product 
and uh, it's it serves a need for so many different online communities and groups of friends like fraternities for example but it actually also serves a need for corporate events and charity events that want to do like 500 player uh, tournaments so we are doing a lot of like pre-work right now to get the application and the infrastructure into a place where we can we feel confident and, and like we can reliably build an amazing mtt product and that's what's going to be like probably the next uh, six months for us i bet are you doing a lot of the product design yourself are you sitting there in figma or some other design tool to actually do the top-down design i am so I am the PM, I am the designer, I am the growth marketer, I am our salesperson, our legal counsel, accountant. I do everything but the engineering and I leave the engineering to uh, Sergio and Mike who are way better at it than I am. Uh, but yes, uh, to answer your question, yes, I am in Figma almost daily doing design work, product design work and also like marketing design work too. What is your marketing approach? Is it all bottoms up or are you doing any like paid marketing? experimenting with paid marketing right now which i can talk about but like very early in the experiment almost all of our growth like i would say 90 plus percent of it comes purely organic so it's through uh google searches it's through reddit posts and other just you know forms of word of mouth the marketing experiments that i've run i've done some email campaigns towards we actually uh, sort of acquired a a competitor of ours about a number of months ago that was shutting down and so uh ran some experiments emailing the competitors, you know, that we acquire their database, of course. So like emailing the users and announcing like clubs poker. And that was a miserable failure for a few reasons. And so I'm, uh, we started with Facebook ads. It, it's, seen, it's showing some success actually early on, but time will tell how that pans out. And then just trying a bunch of different things. Like I, I just struck out an influencer partnership with an up and coming poker vlogger that's doing an awesome a road trip from New York to Vegas and stopping at casinos along the way to play, to play poker. And we're doing a little partnership there. Yeah, working on some other stuff in the influencer space. And yeah, just kind of trying to just run experiments and seeing what works. I mean, in the startup world, like in, you know, in, in our world, the name of the game is, is fortunately or unfortunately is like about, you know, hitting milestones to, you know, to raise more funding and, and, and go down that track. And so my goal right now in advance of us raising a seed round is really just running a bunch of growth experiments just to rule out things that work and you know, sorry, rule out things that don't work and, and uh, double down on the things that do work. So I'm just trying a bunch of different things right now. So um, I guess as we come to a close, I'd love to just know about the, I guess, firsthand entrepreneurial experience, how it's been for you getting started and, and dealing with the ups and downs of building a company. Also, also deserving of its own podcast entirely. So it has been, I started clubs a little less than two years ago. And also keep in mind, like, I have wanted to be a startup founder for my whole career, right? This is what I've been moving towards. I, I, for years, have consumed every piece of information I could about what it's like to be a startup founder and best prepare myself uh, for this journey. It is simply just not something that you can prepare yourself for in advance. You just have to do it. And I am, you know, moving through the highs and the lows, and it is way more intense of a roller coaster ride than I could have ever imagined. I will be lying if I said that it is like all roses. It is absolutely not. It is, there are a lot of really tough times and I just, I just could not properly relate to it before I actually did it. And so I am trying my best. It is like right now, for example, I'll be perfectly candid. Right now, things feel great. We are growing like a weed right now, explosive growth over like this month alone has been just phenomenal in terms of the numbers we're putting up. Uh, and it feels amazing. And it feels like, you know, we're on top of the world. 
but there have been many months where it's felt like the exact opposite. It's felt like the absolute you know, death of us and that there was no recovery. And it's felt, uh, and I'm sure there are going to be times in the future where it feels the same way. It is really challenging. And like, honestly, the biggest challenge for myself right now is not product development. It's not engineering. It's not marketing or fundraising. It is how to wake up each day and be as productive as possible and like mentally present as possible to build this company successfully uh, and do so while sort of in my mind, I am riding this roller coaster that is going up and down and side to side and is uh, uncontrollable at times. Uh, you just kind of got to learn to deal with it, which I'm, I'm have not figured out, but I'm certainly learning how to. Do you have any practices for dealing with those ups and downs? Has, has there been anything that's been particularly soothing or ways that you can level out the, those ups and downs? I can think of, so a couple categories. I have, for the first time in my life, I have a therapist. Uh, I also have an executive coach uh, now too, and similar but different. And we work through different challenges together. That's been really interesting just to like have a place to just talk truthfully about how I might be feeling, even if I, I don't like the fact that I'm feeling this way or, you know, it's just a good place to talk. I think maybe like equally important is having a group of founder friends and, and peers that I can talk with and, and learn from and share openly and honestly with. I'm part of actually a, a master, what we call a mastermind group with five other founders that are in the same stage as me. We meet monthly and we talk about problems that we're dealing with. And it's so helpful just to hear from others that are going through the same unique experience and remember or remind myself that, oh, like I'm not like, I'm not alone. Like I, the feelings that I feel or the, the the fears I have or the, the concerns or the anxieties I have are not, you know, unique just to me. And, and actually this is a near universal experience for all founders, uh, including the most successful ones that have, you know, built amazing companies and uh, reminding myself of that, uh, I think has been incredibly, incredibly helpful. Of course, there's also like, you know, finding ways to you know, finding value in life outside of just work is something that like, I, I derive a lot of my value in life from work. And I think that it has served me quite well, but finding value outside of work, whether that, you know, it's hobbies or relationships, uh, I think is, has also been super helpful for me and a challenge during COVID, of course, but we're working through it. Well, Taylor, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure getting to know you over the last uh, year or so. And Obviously, I've played on Club Spoker a lot, and I'm a big fan of the platform. It's it's really well done, well designed, well built. I have a lot of lot of faith in your ability to execute on it. Uh, thanks so much, Jeff. I think appreciate that. This is early days for us. I can't wait to have this conversation again in a few years and see where Clubs is at.